A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. And passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, for this third Sunday in Ordinary Time, we're presented with Mark's account of the call of the first disciples and the launch of Jesus' public ministry following the arrest of John the Baptist. I know some of you are thinking, those of you who have been following along, if you took in our last episode for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time, we broke open the pericope found in the first chapter of John's Gospel, wherein he recounts, many believe, his own first personal encounter with Jesus. You see, he describes John the Baptist. John sees Jesus passing by, and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples who were with him, one being named Andrew, the other is unnamed. But many believe that unnamed disciple to be the beloved disciple himself, John the Evangelist, John the son of Zebedee. And so Andrew and John, they, upon hearing the declaration of John the Baptist, who had been preparing them for the Messiah, once he declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the long-awaited Messiah, they immediately follow after him. And they have an encounter with him. They spend the day with him. And as a result of that encounter with Jesus, we're told that Andrew was inspired to go find his brother immediately, declaring, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Here in Mark's account, he is not describing that event, that encounter. But no, this happened subsequent to that. Why? Well, look at the first line of today's gospel. The first verse, verse 14, declares, Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee. Now that's significant. Why? Because the events that are described in the first chapter of John's gospel that we reflected upon in our last episode, that event took place in Judea in the south. It took place around the river Jordan. Jesus was emerging from his 40-day sojourn in the wilderness following his baptism. He prayed and fasted for 40 days and nights. He was tested by the devil. He emerges victorious and John sees him. And he reveals Jesus to his disciples. You see, he fulfills his vocation. He is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was preparing his disciples for another, for Jesus. And once he reveals Jesus, the Lamb of God, to his disciples, they immediately follow after him. They've been waiting for his arrival. They encounter him, and as a result of that encounter, Andrew seeks after and finds his brother Simon, who more than likely was in Judea at the time, but was not present at that moment. So there are many who speculate that Andrew, John, as well as Simon Peter, perhaps, 
were all disciples of John the Baptist. And by extension, one could hazard a guess that James as well, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, that all four of them more than likely were followers of John the Baptist. So we have two sets of brothers, basically, that we're describing here. And here we find, in Mark's pericope, we find the account of another encounter that these brothers, these two sets of brothers, have with Jesus. But the circumstances are different here. They're no longer in Judea. They return to Galilee. Remember that Simon Peter, he lived in Capernaum. He originally is from Bethsaida, along with his brother Andrew. James and John, they live in Capernaum, and they're all fishermen. And so it seems that they traveled to Judea to spend time with the Baptist. They were followers of John the Baptist. But then when John was arrested, what took place? Well, they returned to Galilee and resumed their occupations. They resumed their work as fishermen. They were fishermen by trade. And so when it says here, now after John was arrested, and you know that John was arrested because of his outspoken and bold preaching for having denounced King Herod and his illegitimate wife, Herodias, who was actually the wife of his brother, Philip. (laughs) He stole his brother's wife, entered into an adulterous and illicit and very sinful relationship with her, very public relationship, and John the Baptist denounced them publicly, called them out, called them to repentance. And as a result of this bold preaching, As a result of John the Baptist's ministry, he was then arrested. So now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So Jesus travels to Galilee. It says, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here we're told in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So for Mark, we see a clear delineation. Remember, going back to John's iconic declaration, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must what? Decrease. So we find a shift here, a handing on of the baton, so to speak. John the Baptist is arrested, and then Jesus emerges. So here we find in Mark's gospel a clear delineation. Now, when you harmonize the gospels, you recognize that that John the Baptist's ministry did overlap with Jesus for a period of time. It wasn't as clear-cut as we find here in Mark. But because Mark is a very short and concise gospel, that's the kind of approach that Mark has, he presents the launch of Jesus' ministry immediately following the arrest of John the Baptist so as to make abundantly clear that there is a significant difference, a shift between John and his ministry and our Lord and his public ministry. So it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Up until that point, he was in the region of Judea. But following the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus travels to the north. Remember, Jesus is from Nazareth. He grew up in the region of the Galilee. And so he travels to the north. And some posit the theory that for very practical reasons, it wouldn't have been safe for him to launch his ministry in the region of Judea, following the arrest of John the Baptist. That had a chilling effect in that region. So it would not have been wise for Jesus to launch his ministry in the region of Judea, following the arrest of John the Baptist. He no doubt 
would not have only been canceled, to use our popular language, but furthermore, he could have ended up in the same prison, in shackles, and he would have suffered the same fate as John the Baptist. And in order to not jeopardize his ministry, he travels to the north, among other reasons, obviously, because this is the fulfillment of prophecy. As I pointed out in, in other episodes, that the gospel would be preached and proclaimed in the Galilee of the Gentiles, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And I did a whole episode on the significance of Jesus' ministry, the launch of his ministry in that region, historically known as the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And I'll put a link up above here to that episode. It is one of my favorite episodes that I've done thus far, getting into the Old Testament prophecies and connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament I really recommend you take some time to, to watch that episode. But getting back to the point I'm trying to make here, Jesus travels to the north. He travels to the north in order to launch his public ministry. And it says here, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Gospel from the Greek, euangelion, good news, preaching the good news of God. What is the good news of God? Well, it says, and saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. And the Greek term that's used there for time is kairos. In the Greek, there are two terms for time, chronos and kairos. Now, chronos refers to chronological time. This is where we get the word chronological or chronology. It is time that is measured, linear time. It's measured in, in seconds and in minutes and hours, days, weeks, months, years, etc., etc., Kronos differs from Kairos. Kairos refers to a significant moment in time. It refers to a pivotal moment. I think about the, the common phrase, the time has come, a significant and decisive and pivotal moment that separates past from future. And in this context, Kairos refers to God's time. Okay? Kronos, measured time. Kairos, God's time a significant moment, a pivotal moment. And here Jesus is declaring the time, the kairos is fulfilled. The kairos, God's time is fulfilled, has come. Now what is being fulfilled? Well, again, go back to the Old Testament. All of the promises, all of the prophecies found in the Old Covenant, they find their fulfillment with the coming of Christ, with the incarnation. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all the promises made by God in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time, enough time, to go through all of those prophecies. They're just too numerous. But just think about it. God promises. He promises in the Old Covenant. For example, he promises Moses and the people of Israel that he was going to send one like unto Moses to teach them, to lead them, to guide them in a new exodus. Jesus is the new Moses whom God has sent to inaugurate a new exodus and to lead not only Israel, but to lead all peoples of every tribe and nation, of every tongue, to lead all of us into the promised land, to deliver us from the slavery of sin and iniquity, to deliver us into the promised land through his passion, death, and resurrection. God promised to establish a new covenant with his people, a new and everlasting covenant. And Jesus has come to inaugurate, to establish this new covenant in his blood. He does so at the Last Supper. He does so at Calvary. 
God furthermore promises. I think about David. David was promised. Remember, he wanted to build God a house, a temple. And God said, no, 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 no. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. He speaks to David about this everlasting kingdom that he would establish, that his throne would be an everlasting throne, an everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. We find the fulfillment of that promise, not in Solomon or in his progeny. No, we find the fulfillment of that promise in the person of Christ, who is the son of David, who is the new Solomon. And this new Solomon comes to to inaugurate a new covenant, to establish his kingdom. It says here, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what is being announced here, the fulfillment of these promises. God furthermore promises that he's going to restore his people Israel. Israel that had been divided. Following the death of Solomon, we have the break, the schism, the division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Furthermore, we find the northern kingdom decimated, destroyed. It's people sent out in exile by the Assyrians. We find Judah, the southern kingdom, also in the year 587 B.C. At the hands of the Babylonians, they were conquered. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, and they were taken into captivity, into bondage. They thought it was lights out, that it's over for the people of God, but yet God had a plan. And here we find the fulfillment of God's promise that he would not forsake Israel, But with the coming of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, he would draw together, he would bring back, he would unite and renew and reestablish God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. What do we find here? We find with the coming of Christ, what does he do? He, in very deliberate fashion, Jesus begins to draw to himself disciples. How many disciples? 12 disciples which corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is the new Moses. He is the son of David, the new Solomon. He is drawing together these disciples who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He's reconstituting the people of God. So, I mean, we could spend not only the remainder of this episode, but every episode subsequent to this, just unpacking the many and varied ways, countless ways that Jesus is fulfilling the promises and the prophecies of the Old Covenant. This is the good news, the euangelion, the gospel of God. Significant news is being delivered here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Then he calls those who are listening to repentance. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's not the sum total of the good news. That is good news, but it requires a response on the part of the hearer, the listener. We are to what? To repent and believe. And that's significant. Why? Because nowadays there are many, many preachers, ministers of the gospel, who are quite reticent about speaking of repentance and the necessity of repentance, who seek to water down the gospel so as to make it, according to them, more palatable, (laughs) To others. And so they will steer clear of speaking of sin and the effects of sin and of the necessity of repentance. And that term repent, metanoiate in the Greek, refers to a radical change of orientation in mind and in heart. It is a turning away from sin. It is changing 
course in one's life, turning away from iniquity and embracing a different kind of life, embracing the life that God calls us to. And there are many preachers, and of course this is nothing new, who not only shy away from the full proclamation of the gospel and the call to repentance and to faith, they water it down to the point of being barely recognizable. And that is a grave sin. We do not have the right to to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ and the demands of the gospel. It reminds me of something that ethicist and theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once wrote in his classic, The Kingdom of God in America. He has this powerful quote describing the then liberal social gospel that was prevalent and and quite popular during his time. This is back in, in the 30s. And I would submit to you that that gospel is quite alive and well. That false gospel, that truncated gospel is alive and well even today. He states in this work, The Kingdom of God in America, he describes the American gospel in these terms, quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Close quote. Now I would submit to you, my friends, this that was written back in the 1930s, this description of the American gospel, I think it holds true to this very day. I don't think much has changed. If not, it's gotten worse because we have so emptied the gospel of its power. We have sought to sanitize it to the point of it being emptied of its power. And it's important for us to recognize the difference between the false gospel that is proclaimed throughout this land and throughout the world and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. All you need to do is go back to the gospels. Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The only way that we can apprehend this good news, the only way to be initiated into the life of grace is through repentance and faith. And this repentance is not just a one-shot deal, a one-time happening. No, this is continual conversion throughout the course of our lives. This is the alternative lifestyle to which we are called. Our Lord calls us to separate ourselves from this wicked generation and to adopt a kingdom lifestyle, which involves what? Continual repentance and conversion. This is lost on so many Christians, my friends, because there are many, many who are preaching and perpetuating a false gospel. And we have to watch. We have to be mindful of the fact that we too are going to be seduced. The enemy is going to seek to draw us into this false gospel and this false gospel lifestyle and we must reject it that's why we must reflect upon and meditate upon the words of christ not my interpretation of the words of christ but the very words of our blessed lord and he continuing that trajectory of preaching also builds upon the preaching of john the baptist and the prophets that came before him they continually called the people of god to what to repentance and jesus is no different Repent, metanoiate, and believe in the gospel. And so as he announces this, we're told in verse 16, declaring, and passing along by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. 
verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Let's stop there for a second. Whenever I read the account of the calling of the first disciples, whether it was from Mark's gospel, whether it was from Matthew's gospel, growing up, it was a passage that left me a little bit confounded because I would scratch my head and say, really? The disciples, at least at that point in time, I didn't understand that this was not the first encounter that they had with Jesus. I, for a long time growing up, believed that this was the first time that they saw Jesus, that they laid their eyes on Jesus, that they heard Jesus. I thought that he was a total stranger to them. And so when I would read this account, he would walk by and simply say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Just a really strange invitation that they immediately would drop their nets and follow after him. And not only Simon and Andrew, but it says here, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. Verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So again, not only with Simon and Andrew, but he goes a little farther and he calls two other brothers and they leave their father and their livelihood and their family and they follow after Jesus immediately. And that always bothered me because I didn't think it was plausible not recognizing that this was not the first time that they had encountered Jesus. And so when you harmonize this passage, understanding that in John chapter 1, we have recorded there what many believe to be the first encounter that Andrew, presumably John, if he is the unnamed disciple mentioned there, and later Simon Peter, this was the first encounter that they had with Jesus. That makes a huge difference. When you read in that account the fact that they spent the day, John and Andrew, with Jesus, they spent that day with him. And so impacted was Andrew that he ran immediately to get his brother to declare what? We have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus. So immediately this encounter with Jesus had a profound impact on their lives. So here in Mark chapter 1, this is not the first time that they encountered Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus. And furthermore, based on the announcement, the proclamation of their former master, John the Baptist, they believed that he was the Messiah. Now, after John was arrested, these fishermen returned to Galilee. These disciples of John returned to Galilee and returned to their livelihood, returned to fishing. And this is when Jesus, following the arrest of John the Baptist, he travels as well to the north, to the Galilee, and he finds these same disciples of John. And he formally beckons them to follow him. Now, to add to that, when I truly read and understood Luke's account in Luke chapter 5 of the pivotal moment when Jesus, who was in the Galilee preaching, he borrows the boat belonging to Simon Peter, and he beckons Simon to, to allow him to use it as a makeshift pulpit, and he indicates to him, he instructs him to push away from the shore that he might use the water to, to carry his voice to the multitudes, to the thousands who had come to hear the preaching of our Lord. And remember, he commands him after a while to put out into the deep. Now, Simon has fished all night and caught nothing, but he acquiesces, he accepts this command, and he puts out into the deep. And furthermore, our Lord commands him to drop his nets, to lower his nets for a catch. This is the account of the miraculous catch. 
as a result of this miraculous catch that involved Simon Peter. Again, it almost capsized. It almost sunk his ship, his boat. He beckons to his partners, namely James and John, who were also fishermen. They, they had some kind of an arrangement, some kind of a partnership. And so he beckoned for assistance. And they came with their boats and they filled their boat as well. And in that account, we're told that Simon Peter, he declares to Jesus, falling to his knees, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But then Jesus comforts him and declares to Simon Peter, be not afraid. Do not be afraid, for henceforth you will be catching men. Again, this goes back to what we find here. Henceforth you will be a fisher of men. And as a result of that, that, that beckoning, we're told that, that Simon Peter, that these fishermen, they followed after Jesus. And so when you harmonize these various passages, you recognize that these disciples, prior to this moment, they had come to know Jesus. They had come to encounter Jesus. And so when he finally comes to call them to discipleship, they were told immediately, drop their nets, and they followed after him. Now that is much more palatable, much more plausible than reading, as I did, again, going back to my youth, I would read this passage and think to myself, there's no way that they would drop their nets and leave everything behind to follow after a total stranger. And I was right, because that really would have been implausible. But because of this backdrop, because with further study, I came to recognize these other accounts, and, and when you harmonize them, they make perfect sense. That is why, after encountering Jesus, they were compelled to follow after him, because they recognized that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, that phrase, fishers of men, is curious, right? Where does he come up with this image, this metaphor? Well, this is nothing new. Actually, Jesus here is alluding to a prophecy that is found in the Old Testament scriptures. If you turn with me to the book of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 16. In Jeremiah 16, we have this prophecy regarding the new Exodus, God's promise that he was going to restore God's people and bring about a new Exodus. And as I alluded to earlier, he also promised a new Moses, namely the Messiah, who would inaugurate this new exodus. But I want you to see what Jeremiah here declares, beginning of verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Let's stop there. What is Jeremiah alluding to here? Well, he is alluding to the conquest, the conquest of the northern kingdom. Remember, I mentioned before that the kingdom of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and exiled the Israelites, the vast majority of the Israelites, they dispersed them into various lands, various countries, never to return. And so the promise here is that when the Messiah comes, remember, this represents, the northern kingdom represented 10 of the 12 tribes of God's people. Remember, the 12 tribes of Israel. But there was a break, a splintering, a schism. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they, they broke off and separated and divorced from each other following the death of Solomon, not long after. And so these 10 northern tribes distinct from the two tribes of the southern kingdom of Judah, 
which were comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, these 10 northern tribes were decimated. And the vast majority of the populace were deported. They were exiled into distant lands, never to return. So one of the promises that we find echoed throughout the writings of the prophets, and here specifically in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, is this promise that with the coming of the Messiah, that he would restore, that he would bring back these 10 lost tribes of the house of Israel, thus reconstituting and restoring the 12 tribes. Let me read that again. But, verse 15 declares, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Look at verse 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. Close quote. I'm going to read that again. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. Isn't that significant? Can you understand now what Jesus is doing? Where does Jesus go? We're told in the gospel that he travels to the Galilee. Where's the Galilee? The Galilee is in what used to be called the Northern Kingdom. <laughs> the kingdom that was comprised of the 10 tribes, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 10 tribes were conquered and then deported, exiled. Where does Jesus go? He goes to the northern kingdom. And what is he doing in the gospel? He's calling for fishers of men, whom he will later, in the Great Commission, he will command them to go and to make disciples of all nations. He will send them as fishers of men to draw back, to call back those dispersed and exiled members of those 10 tribes in order to reconstitute God's people. Jesus is deliberate here. He says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That's an immediate callback to what? To Jeremiah 16. This prophecy that God will send for many fishers and they shall catch them. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you, you connected these, these pieces together, but, but Jesus in declaring that, is calling us back to Jeremiah 16, this prophecy of the fishers of men. That is precisely what he's doing in our gospel today. Isn't that powerful? And so these disciples, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, they immediately drop their nets and they follow after Jesus. In the case of, of Simon and Andrew, they drop their nets and they're leaving their livelihood. In the case of, of James and John, we're told that they, the sons of Zebedee, they left their father, they left their, their family in order to follow after our Lord. And this teaches us that discipleship requires sacrifice. In order to follow after Jesus, in order to be his disciple, he must come first. The kingdom must come first. Everything else is secondary. Following Jesus, that is our first priority. Glorifying God, that is our first priority. Seeking after the kingdom, as Jesus declares, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Discipleship requires that we renounce the things of the world in order to follow after him. It's important for us as, as Christians, as disciples of the 21st century, that we reflect upon our own discipleship, our own relationship with Christ. Have we heard the invitation of our Lord 
to follow after him, to be made fishers of men? And have we heeded that call? Have we responded in faith to that call? Namely, have we dropped our nets in order to follow after him? Have we sacrificed and left things behind in order to make him and the kingdom our priority? Because you cannot follow after Jesus unless you have chosen and elected to drop your nets, unless you have surrendered to him, surrendered all to him. The sad reality is that there are many who labor under the misconception that they are disciples of Jesus, when the truth of the matter is that they continue to hold on to their nets. And the net is an apt symbol, (laughs) because when we allow ourselves to become entangled in the things of the world, (laughs) the world ends up catching us. And it restrains us from being able to freely follow after Jesus. And so in order to follow after Jesus, we must become disentangled from the things of the world. Because there's no other way to follow Jesus. You have to drop your nets. You have to make him the priority of your life, the center, the source, and the summit of your life. If he's not, if he's secondary, if he's tertiary, if he's not your number one priority, then you are not following after Jesus. You are not a disciple. If he is not, you're all in all. And so there's much for us to glean from this passage, from today's gospel. Are we still vacillating? Are we still standing by the shore in the tepid waters of our faith? Have we put out into the deep? Remember, that's what he tells Simon. Simon, put out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. Do we find ourselves in the still and placid waters, the tepid and shallow waters of our faith? Truth be told, there are many, many Christians, many believers who have yet to put out into the deep because to put out into the deep requires faith and trust, requires courage because those deeper waters, they're not tepid, they're not placid, they're choppy and they're difficult. They're hard to navigate. That unknown And there are many who lack the faith and the courage of conviction to put out into those deep waters. And so, again, there's so many different ways to apply this passage and related passages to our lives. But this comes down to discipleship. It comes down to obedience. The fact that they followed him immediately, that is nothing short of inspiring. And I wonder to myself, do I have that same, am I possessed of that same docility? Do I have the faith of a Simon or an Andrew or James and John? Could I do that? Am I doing that in my life? Because there are demands that are placed upon us, my friends. We don't always respond with that sense of promptitude. We don't always respond with that sense of urgency. But truth be told, many of us wrestle with that. We we hold on to our nets. I pray as we consider this powerful gospel passage that we would seek this opportunity to to wrestle with the word of God and to apply it to our lives, that it might convict us of the many ways in which we fall short and that we would repent of our recalcitrance, that we would with immediacy and with faith and conviction drop our nets, repent of our sins, and believe in the gospel, follow after Jesus. Now, so much more can be said, but in the interest of time, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of the prophet Jonah. Our first reading is taken from the third chapter of the book of the prophet Jonah. Now you know, you're familiar with the story of Jonah the prophet. He's referred to as the reluctant prophet. I think that that's too mild a description. When you read this very short book, which is comprised of just four chapters, just a few pages, and I invite you to do so, 
I mean, read the entirety of this book so that you get a, a deeper sense of the significance of this passage and how it relates to our gospel pericope. This is the story of not a merely reluctant prophet, but a rebellious prophet, a prophet who is not obedient to the command of the Lord. Again, just contrast the response of Jonah to the call of the Lord and the response of the disciples in today's gospel. They responded immediately and with obedience to the invitation of the Lord. Whereas the prophet Jonah, he does not respond with immediacy, with promptitude. No, he is not obedient. In fact, he's disobedient when called upon, when commissioned to proclaim God's word to the people of Nineveh. He does not embrace this mission, but instead he flees in the opposite direction and books passage to Tarshish, which is the equivalent of the ends of the earth. I mean, Tarshish was about 2,500 miles from Nineveh. We're talking about the opposite direction, as far as one could flee from this wicked place known as Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian kingdom. The Assyrians were enemies of the northern kingdom of Israel, going back to the time of Jonah. And so Jonah upon receiving this mantle, this ministry, this assignment, this mission, he is upset, and that's putting it mildly. He rejects this mission because it is extending mercy to the enemy of God's people, and Jonah will have none of it. You want me to preach your word to that scum, to our mortal enemies? I will have none of it. And why? Why does he react this way? Well, we we find out, if you go with me before we dive into the text, in chapter 4, he gives the reason. He states, and this is verse 2 of chapter 4, quote, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repentest of evil. Close quote. Now, that's significant. What is he saying here? He said, I knew you were up to something. You, you were commanding me to go and to preach to our enemies, to preach in Sin City to this wicked people that are at the brink of, of destroying us, of conquering us. You want me to go there into the belly of the beast to announce your word, to warn them of the coming destruction. I know you, Lord. You are merciful. You are merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know you. If they repent of their sins, you will forgive them. And I don't want that. I don't want that. They are our enemies. They deserve to be destroyed utterly, to be shown no mercy. And so he's being commanded to go into the belly of the beast and to proclaim God's word. And he knowing God to be a God of mercy to being omnibenevolent and beneficent, abounding in mercy and in steadfast love, that covenant love. He knew God full well, and he knew that there was a chance that if they did repent, he would forgive them. He didn't want to be part of that. So what does he do? He books passage, and he goes in the opposite direction, and he flees to the ends of the earth, so to speak. But God, God orchestrated to have a great fish swallow him up as he was cast overboard and regurgitated, vomited up on the shore, and commanded once again to go to Nineveh. He was not going to get out of this. 
God's will will be done. So we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 3, which states, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's stop there. What do we find? We find the fulfillment of God's plan. You see, he wanted his word proclaimed to them, to the enemy of God's people. He extended mercy. And with the announcement of the prophet, he announced what? The word of God. And the word of God has power. And when they receive that word, that warning of the coming destruction in 40 days, and that number 40 is synonymous with a period of purification, go back to the account of Noah and the flood. 40 days it rained and 40 nights, bringing about this flood that cleansed the whole world, the earth. This is a callback to the 40 years in the wilderness of the Israelites, a time of purification, a time of testing. And so they declared a fast, a period of prayer and of repentance, donning sackcloth and, and ash. So they responded. They responded with repentance. Jonah, we find out in the next chapter, as I read to you earlier, he knew God well enough to know that if he proclaimed this message, there was a good chance that by God's grace, the Ninevites would receive this message and repent of their sins, that God would have mercy on them. And he didn't want that because he was filled with what? With contempt for his enemies, for the people of Assyria, for the Assyrian kingdom. And here we have a lesson. We have a foreshadowing of what we find Jesus articulating in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, he famously declares, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the teaching of Christ who commands us to love our enemies. And here we have God commanding, commanding Jonah to proclaim good news to the people of Nineveh. And because Jonah had such contempt and hatred for the enemies of God's people, he was not only reluctant but rebellious, refused to. But God induced him to do so. In obedience, he proclaims God's word. God's word has power, my friends. Today is the Sunday of the word of God. This is a Sunday declared by Pope Francis to be devoted to the Word of God, as is every Sunday, but he has set this particular Sunday apart for the third Sunday in ordinary time to be a Sunday commemorating the importance, the significance of God's Word, which is central in our lives as believers. And here we have proof positive in this passage that there is power in God's Word, that when we proclaim the Word of the Lord, it has the power to pierce the stony, hardened hearts of the worst of our enemies and bring them into the light and into the grace of God. There's a lesson in here for us, my friends. 
And so Jonah proclaims this message, and it wasn't a flowery message. He was proclaiming to them that destruction would befall them because of their wickedness. In 40 days, this would come to take place. And then number 40, synonymous with a time of purification. So they responded. They responded with repentance. Repentance. Again, this is key. Key to entering into the will of God. To be conformed to the will of God, we must repent. So what do they do? They repent. From the king goes out a decree that man and beast should pray and fast and be covered in sackcloth and ash. So they repented en masse, corporately. And God had mercy. Mercy on the Ninevites. In verse 10, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now that verse is a bit controversial. Why? Well, it suggests quite strongly that God somehow changed his mind. And if we believe that God is immutable, we believe that God does not change, we believe that God is truly perfect, then how can we reconcile this? this passage, this verse, and verses like it, with our belief, with our teachings regarding the immutability of God. How can he somehow change his mind? Not only change his mind, but it says that God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them. So this suggests that God repented of evil, the evil that he said he would do to them. So God is somehow being described here as one desirous of doing evil, but then he repented. So what's this about? Let me just break this down for you very simply. The Bible uses anthropomorphic language. What does that mean? Well, it uses language that is descriptive of human beings and the way that human beings would think and act and behave. And throughout the scriptures, we find God described with anthropomorphic or, or humanizing language. God is not a human being. We know that God is spirit. God is not a human being. But we as feeble human beings in our limited capacity, with our limited wisdom and knowledge and and ways of communicating, we attribute to God, we write of him, we describe God using human terms, human language. This is anthropomorphic language. So that must be stated at the outset. And so God will be described using human language and human terms. That's one thing that needs to be asserted here. We find that throughout the scriptures. The other thing that is important to note here is where it says God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them. God repented. He decided where he was starting out to indicate that he would destroy the people of Nineveh. Nineveh would be destroyed utterly in 40 days. He had a change of mind. This is what the term repent suggests here. We know that God cannot change his mind because God is unchangeable. His mind is unchangeable. God, as he orchestrated things, sent the prophet out to deliver a message, a message that would induce the people to repent and would indicate to them that if they continued in their ways, he would visit punishment upon them. But God knew full well that they would repent. And so it wasn't that God changed his mind. This is our description. Again, human beings. Jonah's description of what unfolded and it portrays God as having changed his mind when in reality because God knows the end from the beginning because God is outside of time 
because God is omniscient. He knows all things and therefore cannot change his mind. Though from our vantage point, we perceive God to have changed his mind. That's why the language employed here and throughout the Old Testament scriptures seems to suggest that God is changing his mind. No, that's just our perception, our human perception of God. But in reality, God is immutable. So I hope that that makes sense. The other thing that I wanted to point out here, the suggestion that God is capable of doing evil or intended to do evil, this really is a matter of of semantics, of language, because the term evil here in Hebrew is ra'ah, ra'ah. That is the term employed throughout the scriptures that describes evil, but it not only describes evil, this is important to understand, it also is the term that is used for injury, distress, suffering, okay? Now think about that. Injury, distress, suffering. It also means evil. And in this context, it doesn't mean what we necessarily think it means. And this passage, this verse, while it can seem to suggest that God was intending to do evil, understand that that term, ra'ah, not only means and equates with evil, okay, objective evil, moral evil, but it is also the term used for suffering, okay? What is being described here? Well, God was intending to punish, to inflict suffering and injury on the people of Nineveh. But, again, using anthropomorphic language, he had a change of mind. He repented of the evil, of the suffering, the misery that he was going to visit upon the people of Nineveh. So this is a matter of, of language, okay, and semantics. And it's important to understand that because there are many who seize upon this and say, look, this proves that God is capable of evil, of wickedness. No, 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 no. Look at the original Hebrew. The term is ra'ah, which doesn't only mean evil. It can also mean misery, injury, suffering, as in the suffering that God was going to visit upon the people of Nineveh. All right? So I hope that that makes sense. That clarifies that. And so when we look at these two passages, we see clearly these themes emerge of vocation, of calling, of mission, of obedience. And in our responsorial psalm, if you turn with me to Psalm 25, we also find these currents, these themes reflected in this particular psalm. And the response is, teach me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your ways, O Lord. This is the prayer of a disciple, of a student, of a follower. Teach me your ways, O Lord. We pick up in verse 4. Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Verse 5. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day long. Let's stop there. That's beautiful. Again, it describes the disposition of a disciple to be taught the ways of the Lord. But then we pick up here in verse 6. And this really is reflective of, I think, the posture of the Ninevites who are pleading God's mercy, his benevolence. Verse 6 states, quote, Be mindful of thy mercy, O Lord, and of thy steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy steadfast love, remember me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, 
He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Close quote. Beautiful. Psalm that wonderfully reflects both the gospel and today's first reading. It's a prayer, the prayer of a true disciple, desirous to learn the ways of the Lord, to be taught the ways of the Lord, and desires God's mercy and his salvation. That needs to be our prayer. Well, my friends, in closing, what I'd like to do is invite you to turn with me to a few brief but relevant passages from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the first one that I want to cite for you is paragraph 541, which states, and I quote, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Unquote. Quote, To carry out the will of the Father, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. Unquote. Now the Father's will is, quote, to raise up men to share in his own divine life. Unquote. He does this by gathering men around his Son, Jesus Christ. This gathering is the church. Quote, On earth, the seed and beginning of that kingdom. Close quote. It's paragraph 541 of the Catechism, which is keyed to the very pericope that we have reflected upon for this third Sunday in Ordinary Time. The next passage that I'd like to quote is paragraph 1427 and following that, 1428. 1427 states, quote, Jesus calls to conversion. This call is an essential part of the proclamation of the kingdom. Quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Unquote. In the church's preaching, this call is addressed first to those who do not yet know Christ and his gospel. Also, baptism is the principal place for the first and fundamental conversion. It is by faith in the gospel and by baptism that one renounces evil and gains salvation. That is, the forgiveness of all sins and the gift of new life. Close quote. And then it picks up in the very next paragraph, paragraph 1428, which states, quote, Christ's call to conversion continues to resound in the lives of Christians. This second conversion is an uninterrupted task for the whole church, who, quote, clasping sinners to her bosom, is at once holy and always in need of purification, and follows constantly the path of penance and Unquote. This endeavor of conversion is not just a human work. It is the movement of a, quote, contrite heart, unquote, drawn and moved by grace to respond to the merciful love of God who loved us first, close quote. And so these two paragraphs, paragraphs 1427 and 28, remind us of this call to conversion, which resounds in the lives of all Christians. It is a continual process. It's not a one-shot deal, but over the course of our lives, the Lord continues to beckon us to deepen our conversion. And that requires deepened repentance. And so, as we prepare to celebrate the sacred liturgy for this third Sunday in ordinary time, let us be mindful of this call to continual 
conversion. Let us be mindful of the fact that we are called to search our hearts and souls, to examine our consciences in order to identify the sin that remains in us, the many ways in which we have failed the Lord, that we have sinned against him, the many ways in which we have not cooperated with his grace and with his calling on our lives, the many ways in which we've behaved like Jonah, the rebellious prophet, and we have resisted the Lord's will in our lives. Let us be mindful of that sin. Let us repent of it and let us seek to be reconciled with the Lord, especially as we prepare to receive our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. So my friends, this brings our episode to a close. As always, my hope and prayer is that this podcast series has been and continues to be a source of blessing and encouragement and inspiration for you. If it has been, praise God for that. For those of you who have been edified by this podcast, by this channel, I encourage you to consider partnering with me in this endeavor. Help me to make this a blessing for others. You can do so in a couple of concrete ways. First and foremost, you can start by liking this video. And if you have yet to subscribe to the channel, please do so by liking and subscribing, by engaging in the comments section. You indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content and they're more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. That's the whole point of this channel. It exists to evangelize and to make Christ known. So please like and subscribe. You can also, if you're so inclined, consider partnering with me formally by becoming a patron of this podcast, a co-producer of this podcast. You can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. On that page, you'll see a number of different levels of patronage. And so if you're inclined to partner with me on a monthly basis to sow a small seed, I tell you every little bit counts. If you're more inclined to maybe offer a one-time gift or sporadically here and there, you can also consider visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash Hector Molina. That is another platform for content creators. And so if this podcast has blessed you, consider buy me a coffee or two or three or four. These are not literal cups of coffee, but this represents the tiny gift that you're sowing into the work and all the funds generated by Patreon and by buy me a coffee. These funds go right back into the ministry. There are fixed costs associated with this work producing this podcast, and this helps offset that. And so please consider partnering with me in this endeavor, becoming either a patron or buying me a coffee. Every little bit counts as we seek to evangelize and to make Christ known. Speaking of patrons and supporters, I want to thank my amazing community of patrons for their continued partnership and support to all of you who have bought cups of coffee, numerous cups of coffee. It means the world to me. Thank you for your partnership, your support, and your encouragement. It means so much. Well, my friends, until we gather again next week to reflect upon the readings for the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, my fervent prayer continues to be for you. In the words of the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.